Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, October 9th, 2019 edition of our little weather get-together, show number 295. And tonight is an open mic night, so we're going to be talking about a couple of things going on, not only here in the Carolinas, but across the United States weather-wise. So uh, we hope that you will uh, look forward to seeing that conversation and hearing our conversation. And as always, we'd love to take your questions. Uh, if you are watching tonight on our many live streaming options, you got Facebook Live, Periscope, Twitch, YouTube, you can submit your own questions. If you have a question, maybe about the forecast, maybe when the rain's coming, something like that, let us know. Uh, just uh, type your comment. Uh, or question into the uh, the little bar, and we'll be monitoring those throughout the show, and uh, we'll get to as many as possible. So uh, we hope that you will interact with us. And if you're listening on the podcast version, well, unfortunately, you won't have that option to ask us questions. Uh, but we also hope that you will uh, download us on uh, the podcast version and give us a, a like. Uh, you can find us on any of those major podcast. Um, any of the major podcast outlets and uh, just type in Carolina Weather Group and there we are. So uh, we're happy to have you joining us tonight. So uh, like I said, this is an open mic night. Uh, we have a few topics uh, that we'd like to discuss. And uh, first of all, before we do that, I'm going to bring in some of our panelists, let them uh, say hello to you and kind of give a brief weather update. We're going to go old school like we used to uh, since it's open mic night. So I'm going to bring in, first of all, uh, a good friend of ours, Who's down in Charleston, South Carolina tonight, Mr. Shea Gibson. Shea, how is uh, things going in Charleston? Actually, really cool here, Scotty. We've we finally broken our summer heat at end of the last Friday, and so we've had a succession of a few days of low 80s, and then we had uh, really good weather over the weekend. Uh, Boeing Family Day happened; really perfect weather for that. So it was great to bring the family out uh, to see the Dreamlifter and the Dreamliner and all those really cool things. But since then, we've we've gotten a northerly wind sort of fixed into the area after a cold front went through. Got a little bit of rain, not very much at all. It was just enough to dust the area, but it, it was still nice to get the ground wet for once after a while. Um, since Dorian, we really haven't had very much. And we'll talk about that on the drought monitor. But um, yeah, cool temperatures today. We, we've had a little bit of a north-northeast wedge built in in the area. So we're looking at upper 70s to low 80s for tomorrow and the next few days. And things look really good. We're, we're transitioning to fall nicely where it's cool at night and not very hot in the daytime. The only thing we have to contend with here are mosquitoes. And those are still pretty bad. So um, with that said, I'll pass it on to the next region. Uh, but we're doing pretty good here. And yeah, just keeping the northerly wind around, wind around for another day or two. Awesome, Shay. Thank you for that. I think we're all ready for the mosquitoes to go away. I'll uh, send it to Evan Fisher, who is also in Charleston. But uh, Evan, you also monitor uh, the weather in the North Carolina mountains. So uh, how are things there in your neck of the woods of Charleston? And what else have you been watching over the past week? Well, the heat finally broke probably I think probably Friday afternoon in uh, Western North Carolina so that was a big a very welcome reprieve uh, summer has been seemingly eternal uh, but we actually did get some rain over the weekend lots of clouds the wedge kind of set in so it's been uh, it's been cool and moist and it's, it's certainly not a break from the drought conditions that we've been seeing but it's better than nothing um, and the 30-day precipitation totals of less than half an inch uh, those have been erased luckily um, you know, over the next few days, we'll kind of see these temperatures continue to moderate, uh, but we'll get to that a little bit later on. All right, Evan, thank you for that. And let's bring in a familiar face that you've not seen in a while. Peter, how are things going on up in your neck of the woods? Oh, I want to put the fireplace on. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, it's been pretty chilly up here lately. Yeah, we've been stuck in the 50s and 60s with the 
doom and gloom. Uh, there hasn't been much sun lately. Uh, and as of now, we're dealing with that little coastal feature out in the ocean that's uh, giving us some rain and wind and uh, parts of the Jersey Shore dealing with some minor to moderate coastal flooding as we speak. Uh, but not doing too much damage, though, thank God. It's been uh, pretty quiet around here lately, so we could use a little bit of rain. We're in a drought, and uh, some places are in a moderate drought, so I guess it's a good thing we have some rain and some cloudy weather here, but uh, it looks like the next week or so, we're only going to go up to the 70s, and uh, maybe we'll get some sun by this weekend. So, uh, yeah, it's been just quiet, cloudy, cool, typical fall weather here in the Northeast. You know, that is, uh, I was checking one of our settings there. Uh, that's kind of been the story here in Western North Carolina. Our first, uh, I was telling Peter before uh, the show starts, and I actually had to wear a hoodie this morning. So it was uh, down into the 50s, uh, the first little uh, little spout of uh, cold air. And it looks like next week we could get even chillier. Uh, our last uh, panelist here on the, uh, the panel tonight, we have Mr. Tim Pounds, who is in the North Augusta area of South Carolina. Tim, how's the weather been down in your uh, your area? Well, since I'm kind of the furthest south of everybody, I'm still not convinced that uh, fall is here yet. Most of our temperatures have been kind of in the low 80s, uh, really getting into the mid 80s as well. And for those of us who live out in the rural areas like I do, our dirt roads are still dusty as mess and our cars are still dusty as heck. So uh, it, I, well, we're getting there. We're, we're starting to feel some little cooler temperatures. I appreciate it not being in the 90s, but uh, we'll, we'll welcome the 70s and the 60s as they get here soon. Yeah, definitely. A lot of folks happy about the cooler weather, and uh, I think you'll be getting your taste of cool weather coming really, really soon, uh, maybe as early as next week as we uh, watch a cold front. We'll talk about that cold front coming up in just a little bit. Uh, but first, a uh, little bit of uh, news here as we start our first topic is uh, Hurricane Dorian. We're about a month out from when uh, Dorian moved across the uh, the eastern part of North Carolina and uh, along the coastal areas of South Carolina. Some news coming out uh, this afternoon uh, from FEMA, and uh, FEMA's talking about where uh, it has rejected the assistance to North Carolina. Uh, FEMA director sent a letter to Governor Roy Cooper over uh, the past few days talking about uh, the uh, they've reviewed the information, but the impact to the businesses and folks who live uh, in eastern North Carolina did not reach the severity or the magnitude that it needed to for designation of assistance. Um, Roy Cooper calls this devastating and disappointing news. Uh, there is an appeal process um, right now. Uh, North Carolina Emergency Management Director Mike Sprayberry is meeting in Washington, D.C. with North Carolina delegates to see what they can do uh, in this appeal process and uh, see if we can um, get some things ahead to North Carolina, at least on the federal level. Um, the main issue is the threshold. Uh, no matter if a thousand homes or 10 homes are affected, you know, we, we still know people are affected, uh, but there is a criteria and that just was not met in Eastern North Carolina, at least from FEMA standards, uh, to provide assistance to those folks who were affected by Hurricane Dorian, especially the folks who uh, live on Ocracoke Island. Uh, with that, uh, the North Carolina House uh, lawmakers have gone together over the past few days to determine what kind of help the state can send out to the Outer Banks and Ocracoke Island. Uh, the Island School, there's only one school on Ocracoke. It's a K-12 through school. And uh, that school was completely uh, damaged uh, from water and wind 
Uh, so the in fact, the students just went back on Monday, uh, four weeks after uh, Hurricane Dorian affected the area. Uh, they are um, working on the school, but right now they're in a, a new location, a new building, uh, so classes can uh, begin again. The uh, state has uh, voted and has elected to forgive uh, the county up to 20 school days missed from Hurricane Dorian and also some good news that the school uh, personnel, teachers and, and folks like that who work in the school will be paid for those 20 days. So um, that way there's not a financial strain on those individuals. So um, North Carolina lawmakers obviously frustrated with FEMA uh, that this is uh, also they stated that this happened with Florence in Pamlico County. So just the geographic uh, area of eastern North Carolina, especially the Outer Banks, um, may not get the the eye wall, but we get the outer brushes. And so several hurricanes move through, uh, create damage on the uh, outer banks. And unfortunately, uh, with FEMA rejecting the uh, the assistance, uh, not only with Hurricane Florence a few years back, but also with Dorian, uh, leadership is going to be getting together over the next day, uh, over the next few days, and hopefully get a bill ready to send to um the officials in North Carolina to get some help has started out for Eastern North Carolina. Speaking of help, um, Foodline and Red Cross and the Foodline customers were able to get together. And through that, they were able to um, be able to accumulate 1,772,489.30. That was raised in stores. Uh, from customers and from employees with Foodline, and they've uh, partnered up with American Red Cross, and all these, uh, this money will be sent for Hurricane Dorian relief efforts on the coastal part of North Carolina. And also, you may have heard uh, throughout the last day or two, Mr. Jerry Wood, a resident here in North Carolina, uh, won $100,000 in the lottery. After taxes, he was able to uh, gather $70,756, and he has pledged to use some of that money to also help those folks on Ocracoke Island who are affected by Hurricane Dorian. So Dorian uh, continues to make news here in North Carolina, and I'll open it up to you guys if you want to discuss maybe a little bit. If not, that's okay too, but uh, unfortunately uh, with the path that, well fortunately the path that took Dorian uh, just off the coast of South Carolina and just skirted the Outer Banks, um, it did cause damage, but unfortunately not enough for FEMA to declare assistance in the state of North Carolina. And this is um, some, some heartbreaking news for those folks who were affected, especially in Ocracoke Island. We were able to see uh, some of the flooding that took place there. So uh, our thoughts and prayers continue for those folks who are affected by this. And hopefully uh, with uh, the uh, pill process, if that happens, maybe FEMA will be able to uh, find some money to help out those folks in North Carolina. So with that, uh, the tropics still a conversation, although we don't have any uh, storms threatening the United States. We do have a few areas of, uh, of uh, observation out there that we're watching. And Shay, I'll bring you in on that. Uh, October still in the heat of uh, in, in, in kind of the last month that we see uh, a real big peak in the hurricane season. Everything's starting to go downhill, but we in the past four or five years, we've seen October remain active. So I know you uh, are watching a few areas out in the Atlantic right now. Yes, yeah, Scotty, thanks a lot. Um, yeah, talking about tropics, things are, are relatively quiet overall. We still have a lot of warm water out there. The Gulf of Mexico is still very warm. 
uh, portions of the Atlantic Basin and pockets where, where warm water exists. There's a lot of upper shear out there. There isn't a lot of activity, really, any, any uh, significant tropical waves that we're watching. There are a few areas off the East Coast that are being watched right now, but there's a lot of upper shear on that. There's cold front uh, sort of associated with it. And then I think uh, we may have something lingering off the New England to mid-Atlantic coastline over the next few days. But I don't think it's going to make landfall, maybe subtropical in nature at best, but it's a very low chance for that. Uh, let me go ahead and share screen to sort of talk a little bit about, and I'm going to try this again. Last time it, um, last time it locked me in on it. So let me know when you can see the screen. We've got it. Okay. And are you seeing the uh, peak hurricane season graphic? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. All right. So now I know where to stop share is on the other monitor. That's weird. Okay. Anyways. Um, so yeah, we look at this time of the year. We had September 10th is about the peak of the hurricane season. We've since passed that. We've gotten all the way down here where you see this, this next little spike coming up about the middle of October. We're very close to that. Um, so we're still in this little hook right here of this activity, flurry of activity for October. We tend to see powerful hurricanes this, this time of the year. Um, right now we have nothing but Lorenzo was, was quite a formidable uh, hurricane in, on many aspects. I mean, that was the easternmost category five hurricane to ever form. Uh, and it was pretty far over in the Eastern Atlantic basin. One thing was, one thing that came out of that was not only was the rapid intensification very high, but it also, um, you know, it, it basically cool water upwelling underneath the storm is what finally did it in. And it was problematic all the way over to, to Ireland and even into portions of England. They kept the name Lorenzo, uh, Normally, they would might repurpose that storm for, for the European windstorm events and uh, give it a name. But since it came from the NHC already named, they just kept it. But it was pretty problematic for them. Uh, one thing to re remember about was the Bourbon Road boat, the French boat that got, um, I think it was one engine down. There was some mechanical issues going on with it. It got caught in that hurricane. 14 crew members went down. Three were rescued. Uh, the other 11 remained missing. So at least we had some folks rescued from that operation. I know the NOAA. Hurricane hunters went in, Air Force hurricane hunters went in, and they were doing tracks, and uh, all the efforts did produce three survivors from that. So hats off to them for the efforts for finding those crew members of the Bourbon Road. Um, prayers out to the families of the others. Uh, we go on to the National Hurricane Center map. Let me zoom this down a little bit. And uh, 7.33 p.m. tonight, latest update, we have three little areas. These are very low, 10%. And like I said earlier, there's a lot of upper shear. There's a cold front with upper shear, Across the top, we have surface winds diving down from the north, so a lot of the convection is getting ripped off to the northeast of the storm. This area out here had a higher chance earlier. Now it's come down. Uh, this is over a cooler body of water at this point. Look at CD satellite. This is the area right here um, that is off of the North Carolina coast, and you can see all the convective activity blown off to the northeast of the storm. The center is somewhere in this area, but you can see this upper flow. Uh, really cutting across, and if you look closely down in between these clouds up here, you can see the surface flow heading from north to south. So really a crisscross of winds that really just rips storms apart. So not much to really talk about in the tropics for right now, and we anticipate that to continue uh, for the next five to seven days. It doesn't look like there's really anything of significance coming. We'll have to continue to watch areas such as the eastern Caribbean in the Gulf of Mexico, especially with the loop current off the north tip of the Yucatan Peninsula. Very warm waters in these areas. These have the highest potential for tropical cyclone development. So we'll continue to watch that. And back to you, Scotty. All right, thank you for that, Shay. And it's good to see that uh, we don't have anything major developing in October. I know for you guys and 
South Carolina, y'all, y'all had your run at October Storms with Matthew, and we had Michael last year, and, and just uh, the 2015 flood event. So it's good to see uh, so far October remaining fairly quiet for yeah. us. So. If we get another name, we're on M, so the next name will be Melissa. Yeah, so we'll be watching that. Hopefully we won't have Melissa. Hopefully uh, we can put it into the tropics pretty soon. So with that, speaking of the tropics, uh, Noah was able to uh, issue – uh, a preliminary map. Now this will change. Uh, we still have a few more months left. Uh, Peter, you're looking at uh, some of the most uh, expensive disasters we've had this year uh, with this uh, this new map that's come out. Yeah, this is pretty crazy uh, looking at this map here. Uh, there are plenty of disasters this year, uh, weather-related. And uh, as of this year, as of yesterday, uh, there have been 10 weather and climate disaster events with losses exceeding $1 billion across the United States. So uh, as you can see on the map, I mean, it's pretty much everybody along the uh, parts of the Mid-Atlantic into the central part of the United States down to the southeast uh, towards the Gulf. So in this article, uh, it says this includes three flooding events, five severe storm events, and two tropical cyclone events. And overall, these events resulted in the deaths of 39 people and had significant economic effects on the areas impacted. Uh, and also, between 1980 and 2018, the annual average is 6.3 events, and the annual average for the most recent five years is 12.6 events. So pretty crazy stuff, pretty crazy numbers. And uh, a little farther down the article, uh, it says 2019 is the fifth consecutive year in which 10 or more billion-dollar weather and climate disaster events have impacted the United States. Pretty crazy stuff. Uh, so this is a great article. We should probably post this on Twitter so everyone can read it. And uh, it's pretty interesting to uh, see this map and uh, also the charts they have throughout the article. Yeah, definitely so, Peter. And that's some crazy sass to see how much of an uptick we've seen over the, I think you said the past five or ten years. We, we've seen almost a it's like it's doubled in this. Evan, I was reading this article a little earlier and it highlighted the severe weather outbreak that took place in the plains. And we kind of caught the tail end of that uh, with the uh, the last three or four days of tornadoes out in the Midwest. But that was uh, one of the events that was highlighted in this article. And you and I, we were able to uh, see a tornado in Tipton, Kansas. And um, thankfully it was out in the rural area, but we just seen the devastation that these tornadoes can bring. Oh, yeah, definitely. They're down more towards Oklahoma where they had <clears throat> upwards of, I think, 20 some odd tornadoes in just that you know, few day span right before we got out there in late May. It's unreal the kind of damage that it did to some of the homes and farms. And like Scotty said, we got lucky in the tornado that we saw only hit a wheat field and just barely clipped a barn. But it's, it's heartbreaking to know that you know, more than a billion dollars was lost in these events. It really is. And shade, you know, it showed two tropical systems, obviously Dorian being one, but the other one, Amilda, I think it's, I'm pronouncing it right, uh, created a lot of flooding down again in the Houston, Texas area. And it just seems like, Shay, when we see these tropical systems uh, affecting the United States, it, it, the wind's a, a thing, but we're seeing a lot more flooding events from these. Yeah, that's a, I'll tell you what, that's an area, that's a pocket of the Gulf of Mexico, the northwestern coastline where storms tend to slow down. There isn't a lot of lift in that area. <clears throat> Imelda did basically what Harvey did. It just went, it went into land. I mean, it's a good thing it didn't have another 24 to 48 hours over water. Or it could have been a real, you know, a, a real disaster. It was a disaster on many levels because of the flooding. I mean, we, I think some areas got up to almost three feet 
of rain. You know, Harvey dumped up to five feet. So you're talking about a tropical storm capable of dumping that much rain just because it slows down, and has nowhere to go. Um, you know, we look at we look at Harvey and we thought of, you know, the brown ocean effect where sometimes you get the ground gets so saturated that it just continues to feed the storm and it continues to feed the convection around it with the heat and the warmth. Um, and but this one, it was just it was just tropical moisture just feeding up out of the Gulf of Mexico. And that, that's a that's a bad area. You know, if it goes a little further to the east by just a few hundred miles, at least it can get kind of lifted up out of that area. You know, maybe a slow jog, but there's a little bit more movement as cold fronts tend to, to reach down to the Gulf to tap into that moisture and pull things along. But right there on that northwestern coast, that's a bad spot. It banks up against some higher terrain and it just sits. So, um, but, you know, we had Dorian, luckily, um, you know, grazed the coastline in the southeast and then quickly raced off to the northeast. So it didn't stick around for very long. Unfortunately, there was a lot of flooding. I'm really surprised about that with FEMA. Um, and we'll have to, you know, continue to monitor that as to why and what their appeals process is going to be. But we're talking about a billion dollar costly storm there, you know, it made the list. So it's kind of interesting to see that they didn't make the cut. Um, and there's a lot of criteria behind that. But yeah, two storms, you know, this is becoming almost uh, every year. We went for almost 12 years without a, without a um, you know, major system making landfall last year, of course, Michael. Uh, but he, it just proves that even something as, as weak as Imelda can, can create a, a lot of havoc, even as a tropical storm. So we, we got to, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about possibly, uh, you know, doing the Saffir Simpson scale, sort of uh, tuning that in based on flooding, right? There's a lot of talk about that. I don't know where the NHC is with it or if anybody's on, how many people are on board with it. But, you know, reclassification of storms based on rainfall amounts, I think is a real thing to start looking at as we see this trend continue. Yeah, I agree with you, Shay. Um, I, I know that's a hotly debated topic right now in the weather community. Uh, uh, the, the, the scale that we see hurricanes and, and primarily uh, right now they're judged off of wind speed, but we really need to start incorporating the rainfall and the storm surge and and things like that because you know besides Hurricane Michael, which did produce um, catastrophic winds, a lot of these events are happening because of the flooding and the storm surge threats. So um, hopefully uh, with this making the billion dollar map, hopefully that'll kind of help uh, North Carolina officials uh, have a little bit of a uh, little bit of a uh, power in the in the trotty uh, to uh, turn over the appeal that uh, there's no assistance right now for Dorian. More of our conversation when the Carolina Weather Group returns after this short break. Welcome back to the Carolina Weather Group. Uh, speaking of those billion-dollar disasters, we still have a few months left, and the next topic we're going to talk about could feed into uh, to one of these uh, events happening. Uh, actually, two, we're going to be talking about the drought here in the Carolinas and also the wildfire thread out in California, and both of those could add on to that map by the end of this year. Uh, I'll start first with North Carolina, and then I'll, I'll let Shay uh, kind of go over what's going on in South Carolina. But uh, this is the drought and uh, monitor. This was updated last Thursday, so um, we'll see another one of these come in tomorrow, and we'll be able to post that information up on our social media platforms, Twitter and Facebook, tomorrow with the updated drought index. So right now, we're working off the information that was um, that was released last Thursday at 8 a.m. And for North Carolina, it's showing uh, there's four different stages of, uh, of drought, uh, actually five. We have D0, which is abnormally dry. 
then D1 is moderate drought, D2 is severe drought, D3 is extreme drought, and D4 is exceptional drought. So uh, you can kind of see the, the scales there. Uh, right now, 62.3% uh, of North Carolina is under uh, some sort of drought uh, index, uh, with 41% uh, being in the, uh, the uh, moderate uh, to uh, severe drought. And then 4% uh, is almost in the exceptional drought So, uh, for North Carolina. So again, over 62.3% of North Carolina right now experiencing drought conditions. I will say yesterday there were some locations that was able to uh, get a little rainfall, especially in the mountains. There were a few locations that received over an inch of rain, but in the grand scheme of things, uh, the rainfall that we saw yesterday really didn't put much of a dent in this. In fact, when we see the drought monitor at least tomorrow, we may not see much change in some of those locations in the mountains, but I do expect to see the drought at least extended further into eastern North Carolina as well as the uh, Piedmont of North Carolina as well. Uh, so that is something we'll watch, but uh, these uh, drought conditions uh, look to continue at least for the next week or so. Uh, Evan's going to give us a weather update in just a little bit where we could see uh, maybe some rainfall moving into the area. But for North Carolina, a majority of North Carolina under some sort of drought, and it looks to continue the dry conditions at least through the weekend. Hopefully uh, by next week we can start to get some of these fronts to really drop into the area and produce some rainfall. So Shay, that's the uh, situation in North Carolina. 62.3% uh, of the state under some sort of drought condition. Uh, we do have in the um, severe drought to extreme drought, uh, and about 5% in that category. So not a lot. Most of those are in the southwestern part of North Carolina. So uh, that's the story here in North Carolina. What's it looking like in South Carolina? Yeah, Scotty, um, you know, if you can keep that map up, Tim, if you would, uh, I definitely want to share one screen for South Carolina in a second. But if you look at that, the white on that map, right? That's where there's no drought. That's the, that's the path that Dorian took. So you, you see a swipe of the coastline with rains and that sort of helped alleviate the drought situation along the immediate coastline for much of the Southeast region. Uh, but that area is slowly starting to fill in with the yellows and eventually that'll, all, that'll go towards the coastline unless we get some rainfall over the next week or two. Um, the drought monitor, I believe they end their final readings Wednesday night, I believe it is. And then they go through Tuesday a.m. There's there's a timeline for it. So whatever rainfall is picked up within that timeline, is it's registered. But if it falls the next day, it doesn't. Uh, so we'll see. I think we have um, maybe something late weekend coming up. And uh, I'll go ahead and share my screen for South Carolina and get a better idea of it. And uh, you can see a lot. Some of these areas in the Midlands, uh, they're suffering the worst. They're in D3 extreme drought. Uh, the oranges are severe drought which go on to the upstate and portions down near Aiken, uh, Georgia, along, the, along the, uh, the border here with Georgia. And then as we get the coastline, things are starting to fill in from south to north as we go into time, though. And that's mainly because of the, the little amount of rainfall we've gotten. And in fact, if we look at the next five days, this is the Shreff Plume Viewer, which shows the amount of rainfall we're expecting in the Charleston area. And there's zilch all the way until maybe Sunday morning, we start to pick up some rain. And this 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 one up here is only a tenth of an inch. It looks high on the graph, but it's really a very small amount of rainfall. Uh, so we'll see if that improves at all. But we're, we're not expecting this, this next cold front to drop a lot of rain. What happens is you get um, this time of the year, cold fronts sweep across the country. You get these upper lows over the Great Lakes. It draws a lot of cool air down, drier air down behind these cold fronts. And then it doesn't 
really get a good connection with the Gulf of Mexico for very long and dries out. So what happens with here is what's called frontalysis, where fronts come to die. So, and then we get them, they, they come through the region, they may stall and then sweep offshore. They're really just carrying a lot of drier air with it. Uh, so that's sort of what happens this time of the year. But I'll, I try to tell folks, usually in October, we see some big rain event, at least along the coastline, even if it's a nor'easter event or a low pressure along the coast, something of that nature. We usually see something this time of the year. As far as the Midlands and upstate, we just have to count on cold fronts to, to bring that rain to those areas. And, you know, it wasn't too long ago, just a few years ago, we had some serious wildfires. Uh, going on in North Carolina mountains. In fact, it got to where our air quality was very poor here in the Charleston area. The smoke was coming down slope on Northwest flow and it got caught up in the sea breeze. So the sea breeze was just circulating the smoke. You could actually see it go offshore and circulate back into the coastline during a sea breeze. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. So hopefully we won't have that situation setting up again this year. Yeah, I can attest to those wildfires. That's uh, one of our concerns. And um, in fact, James let us know earlier there was a brush fire in Statesville uh, near the interchange of Interstate 40 and 77. And we're going to continue to see uh, the opportunities for those brush fires and uh, as these dry conditions continue. Um, I was able to look up a stat and it showed anywhere between three to as much as nine to 12 inches of rain we would have to have before we erase the drought status in both Carolinas. So uh, it looks like we're going to be in this for the long haul, um, it, at least um, through this fall, it looks to continue to be dry. Um, Evan, you're monitoring uh, the upcoming weather. Uh, like you said earlier, we are able to kind of kick the 90s out. Uh, we'll probably be done with the, the 90s for the rest of the year. But it uh, looks like we do have another front trying to move into the area over the weekend and maybe could spawn a little bit of rain in portions of the Carolinas. Yeah. So, you know, as Shay was just saying a minute ago, unfortunately this front is going to be moving through on Saturday evening um, through the weekend for the rest of the Carolinas. It looks to be mostly dry. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. Can you guys see this? I'm going to roll with yes. Yes, we got you. Um, okay. Yes. So if you look at this for right now, month to date, we're only at October 9th, but, some locations, particularly mountain locations, have already seen almost an inch of rain. Um, Asheville has seen 0.67 inches so far, um, which is only about two hundredths or sorry, two tenths of an inch less than they saw in the entire month of September. Um, so that's been a huge, huge help to the drought uh, problem. Now, as Scotty said, that may not necessarily make a massive dent in the drought monitor, um, but it, it is at least a good step in the right direction. Um, now, as for other stations outside of Western North Carolina. Uh, GSP is leading the leading the race with 0 0.7, 0 0.07 inches of rain. So it's been incredibly dry. There's been no real systems that have moved through. Um, I think downtown Charleston has saw about half an inch yesterday. Um, but besides that, nowhere else has seen any significant amount of rain. Uh, and even if we look at the past 30 days, um, the 30-day precipitation anomaly is anywhere from, you know, about one inch to upwards of five to six inches below average uh, is what we typically would have expected in September. These areas saw very little of that. Now, obviously we need the rain to settle off some of these drought problems. And if you look at the Euro ensemble, it looks a little bit promising, um, at least through seven days. I'm only gonna take this through seven days for now. Um, it shows definitely some substantial uh, precipitation in Southwestern North Carolina and perhaps a streak of precipitation 
across the middle of the state, um, which kind of tells me that you know, perhaps there could be something moving up and uh, perhaps, you know, along the coast. I don't know. We'll see. I think before we, the next coastal storm um, that could tap into the Gulf moisture won't be until near the end of that seven day range, if not later. Um, but unfortunately, the GEFS, the GFS ensemble, is not quite as excited about the precip uh, odds through seven days. They're generally half an inch below what we would typically see. So that means very little rain. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not going to get any rain, but you know, the GEFS is definitely trending drier than the Euro. Um, and with the system that's coming through Saturday night, that's not going to be enough to drop anything um, worthwhile besides a few showers in Western North Carolina. Now, the WPC, they've issued their you know, forecast for the next seven days, and it's encouraging for some areas. It really kind of looks a lot like the Euro Ensemble, where upwards of you know, three quarters to even an inch of rain in southwestern North Carolina, um, and up to half an inch of rain across maybe north or northwestern South Carolina and through the Piedmont um, and out towards uh, Norfolk, almost in Virginia, and the Raleigh area. They could see up to half an inch of rain. Um, so that's promising. It's more promising than things we're looking about a week ago, uh, but we still have a long ways to go. If you look at the so the first 25 or I believe yeah, the first 25 members of the Euro Ensemble. So now remember the Euro Ensemble is made up of 50 members total. So this is just the first half of them. But if we're looking out through 10 days, um, kind of got to squint a little bit. These are small pictures, but there's a few members like this one over here, number 23, that don't show much precipitation. But overall, we're definitely seeing more of this red, and that red equates to um, anywhere from two to five inches of rain. We're seeing a lot of these members with these red streaks across the Carolinas. Um, you can see it in 18 and 22 and 11. So that's really telling me that at some point over the next 10 days, um, it's looking a little bit more likely that we're going to see some type of coastal storm, kind of similar to what Shay was mentioning, that's going to finally dump that rainfall that we've been hoping for and waiting for for so long. Toss it back to you, Scotty. Thank you for that, Evan. Yeah, we all uh, need some rain. And speaking of rain and the lack of, there's some wildfire concerns. Uh, we've been talking about that here in the Carolinas where uh, fortunately um, we've not seen any major fires, um, but as, as we continue to remain dry, uh, the chances of that go up. But out in California, something we are monitoring are uh, the chances of increased fire danger, critical fire danger in some locations. So we want to talk a little bit about that. I want to screen share something before I toss it over to Shay. Um, one second, Shay, let me get this website. I thought I had it pulled up, but uh, we've been talking about the uh, the fire threat internally here and something that California is doing. But first I want to share the National Weather Service uh, out of Sacramento, California has issued a red flag warning um, for today and tomorrow. And all these locations uh, are under the red flag warning. And this includes uh, places close to San Francisco and down into San Jose, uh, Modesto, California, up into Santa Rosa, uh, Stockton, California. So uh, some fairly populated areas, even up into Redding. So uh, this means extreme fire danger, uh, rapid fire spread with any new fire starts, uh, winds uh, northeast, north to northeast, uh, 20 to 30 mile per hour sustain with gusts 40 to 50 and locally uh, we could see higher or they could see higher gust and then uh, very low daytime humidity and really not a lot of humidity. We normally see humidity rise at night but 
um, that's not the case here with only a 20 to 35 percent chance or 25 percent uh, humidity in these areas. So Shay, uh, that's something we're monitoring. I know you do a lot of wind forecasting. So uh, something that the folks who are watching tonight may have heard of, um, you may have not heard of, but the Santa Ana winds really drive uh, these, uh, these extreme fire dangers in California. No, that's exactly right, Scott. This is the time of the year when Santa Ana winds really start to crank out. What, what happens is you have a, you have a climatic shift of what's called the North Pacific High. Um, also, you have the, the polar jet stream that starts to dip down across the country this time of the year, which brings all those cool weather, all the cool weather from west to east. Um, the combination of the North Pacific High, as it starts to drop south down the California coast, it usually sits up just off the northwest coast through the summertime, through the warmer uh, time of the year, uh, the warmer months. And then as the cooler months come around, that high is forced southwards towards Southern California and even just off of Baja. And so that's where it sits primarily through the winter. But during that transition, you get a lot of large domes of high pressure built into the Great Basin area. And um, what that does is it causes, it, it pretty much forces offshore winds through the California Valley along the coastline. Let me go ahead and share screen and I'm gonna give you a little bit, not, try not to geek out too much on this. But what's set up right now, why the alert is so high is because of this, this 1,038 millibar, uh, this is a, a rather strong area of high pressure over the Great Basin. Remember, this is clockwise flow around it. It's pinched in between a, a, what's called a Rossby wave or a dip in the jet stream. So these winds are going to be forced down through all the way to the northern California coastline. Um, and that's what, what the, the threat is, is up in the mountains, especially and downslope to the coast. And these winds are really going to pick up some speed. And that, as it goes forward, you see this high just sitting there. And that's, that's pretty much what's driving it. It looks like it's going to be about a 24 to 48-hour period. Sometimes these Santa Anas can go on for days. Um, one thing here to, to consider, this is the, the current jet stream. This is the polar jet dipping down. And when you have high pressure built in between both legs of this, this is called a Rossby wave where it bows down across the country, or we call it dip in the jet stream. Um, this is what's forcing the wind down from the north at the higher levels. High pressure is forcing air to the surface where the coastline has lower pressure. So the, the pressure gradient built between the high and the low on the, along the coastline is what drives these winds higher speeds. Now, 25 to 30 is significant, but it actually could be more like 40 in some spots. I've seen some of the forecasts. And these winds can actually get up to 70 to 100 miles per hour when they come down slope. Uh, so if we go forward in time, we see that jet stream dip. It starts to move across the country. We're going to see some cooler air coming with it along with the cold front ahead. And then we have another area of high pressure building in behind that. So that's another concern. Uh, I did pull up the weather channel. I have a decent little graphic here of some of the windiest locations in typical Santa Ana winds. Now, this isn't limited to Los Angeles or Southern California. Um, in San Francisco Bay Area, they do call these El Diablo or Diablo winds uh, because that's about where they're going to be occurring this time of the year. And as the North Pacific High starts to drop, we see these Santa Ana winds really kicking up further south across Mojave. Um, nighttime, with the rel relative humidity dropping, you get a higher pressure gradient at night as the desert cools, and then this air has to rush out of that area. It's a warmer wind, and so it really pumps out of the Santa Clara River Valley towards the coast. These are offshore northeasterly winds, and also through the Santa Ana Canyon, which is named for the Santa Ana winds through the Cajon Pass and Banning Pass, and you can see the downslope on the terrain. I like the Weather Channel's graphic here. It really shows it in more of a three-dimensional view where you can kind of get a, a better idea of how these winds work. 
And so that's what really drives it. I mean, they, you know, it causes a lot of damage. You know, it, it's, it's a very dry wind. It happens during sunny skies for the most part. And these are the winds that drive wildfires to, to epic proportions. And that, that's the concern that they have right now as we start to get into the Santa Ana Seas. And when these high pressures built up to the north in, those, uh, in the Great Basin, that's, that's the, the trigger for the alerts. And um, did, did I see that they cut power to how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people? Yeah, Shay, you have. Uh, this is uh, called the, um, let me get the correct term for it. Uh, I don't want to misspeak. Uh, it is the public um, the public power, public safety power shutoff. And basically what is happening is a lot of these power companies, especially in Northern California, they're, they're cutting the power off to folks. Uh, this is a process. Uh, they monitor the weather conditions and forecasts. A couple of days ago, they sent out uh, advance warning to folks, you know, the fire conditions uh, look to be pretty high for Wednesday and Thursday. So they, they told folks a few days in advance, hey, we're going to be cutting the power off to your location. Uh, right now, over 800,000 folks without power in Northern California. And the reason they're, they're doing this is uh, if the company shut power off, when we do see these gusty winds, and we know in gusty winds, we likely could see trees and power lines come down. And when a power line comes down, it can spark new fires, especially with the uh, extreme uh, and critical fire conditions out there. So uh, they have cut the power off. So that way, uh, if, if their power lines do go down, they won't spark any additional fires uh, that, that could take place. So uh, this at least is going to go through Thursday. And then if wildfires do um, uh, pick up during this time, obviously uh, they'll have to go out and monitor those conditions and check on the power grid before they're able to turn the power or reconnect the power back on. So uh, there are some shelters opening for um, for some of these, uh, but the, the power officials in California emergency management told people you need to prepare. You know, we're, we as meteorologists keep telling folks you need to prepare for these storms, hurricanes, uh, winter storms, even forest fires. You need to have that, um, that safety plan, uh, know where you would go, have that emergency kit ready, and um, read just uh, stock up on your stuff uh, if you do need to leave your home. So uh, it is something that's really fascinating to me. Uh, I, I learned about this last night and we've been chatting back and forth and it's actually gained a lot of national attention today. The Washington Post, um, USA Today, a lot of the, uh, the major news outlets have been covering this event. So folks are obviously they're upset because it's a sunny day and there's no power. Businesses are closed. Schools are closed. Uh, but then the power officials are like, well, if we keep the power off, that cuts the risk of wildfires. If any of our equipment uh, is affected by the wind, it, it won't spark any additional fires. So uh, big yeah. debate going on. I even think the governor of California is not a fan of this. He came out and said it's a problem. People are concerned. Uh, so it's something that uh, is really being discussed in California. And I feel like uh, as this dry season continues out in California and the wildfire season continues, we may hear more and more of this. Shay, uh, so you've got some uh, live data that's pulled up right now, the winds right now in the San Francisco area. Yep, I'm, um, I'm just looking around and, and, you know, a lot of times this kind of wind is, a lot of times it's missed by even some of the best modeling. You can see the trend is upwards uh, to 20 from the east, northeast, or northeast when we get up to Saddleback. 
this is one of the areas where this, these winds start to generate. Now the models may not pick up the speed. You can see the gust here already approaching 30 knots um, up here as of, uh, let's see, about our time in California right now. Uh, so, you know, these averages may pan out, but sometimes these averages can go up even 10 to 20 miles an hour or 10, 20, 10 to 20 knots above what forecast values, even with the higher resolution models. So we're already seeing that northeast flow start to make its way through the area. Right now we have sort of a prefrontal, uh, you know, flow here. We had some south-southwest or southwest winds earlier. Now it's starting to shift and you're seeing that southwest flow starting to work its way down. So this is where it starts to originate, right? You know, at these higher levels in the Sierra Nevadas, where the high pressure is, um, the stronger the high pressure working down the area, the more air is forced down slope. And that's on the western side of the mountains towards the ocean. And wherever it can get in between, anywhere where there's a break, like a valley or a canyon, that's where the wind is going to really focus on. So San Francisco, as you zoom into San Francisco, you can see there's, and I was just up in this area, actually, up in the, um, the Sierra Nevadas but it really rushes down through this area. So these are the El Diablo winds occurring there right now. And as we get uh, a little further into the season, when the, the highs start to sink further south, we'll see that start to populate all the way down to LA and in the Santa Clara Valley, and then all, all the way down into San, San Diego near, this is, a, this is a particularly bad spot between LA and San Diego where a lot of these fires uh, really break out for the stronger uh, Santa Ana winds. So just some live data there showing you the trend that things are already starting to um, to increase, so that's where you know any spark or fire that gets out of hand, it can it can you know erupt very quickly. Yeah, hopefully uh, those will be very minimal. Um, that's a dangerous thing. We we, we remember uh, here locally in the Carolinas, you probably remember the Gatlinburg fire and seeing some of the crazy videos and pictures coming out of that area. So uh, the power company is trying to do their best to uh, at least uh, help. A, eliminate one cause of fire concerns there. So uh, speaking of the forest fires, uh, we want to transition to an uh, interview we did earlier this year uh, with meteorologist Todd Lindley from the National Weather Service in Norman, Oklahoma. He's going to talk to us about how difficult it is uh, to forecast these wildfires and how the winds play a major role. Our conversation continues coming up next. Thanks for staying with us. We'll pick up our conversation now on this week's episode of the Carolina Weather Group. Todd, I have I have a question for you. Um, for getting the word out, as you guys are in the Norman office for your forecasting, I know the the Storm Prediction Center, which is your neighbors um, there at the National Weather Center, they issue uh, fire weather outlooks. Uh, I think a day one, day two, and then day through three through eight, I believe, is what it is. And then you guys also issue like um, red flag warnings and stuff like that. Can you kind of talk to our viewers about those different products and if one's issued for their area, maybe what that they may, they uh, those advisories or whatever may be mean for them? Sure. Yes. Well, you're correct. The Storm Prediction Center issues fire weather outlooks uh, for days three through eight, you know, day two and of course day one as well that basically just indicate whether the, the weather will fire weather will be elevated, uh, critical or extremely critical for a given area. And that's, that's a good, you know, indicator to folks that, you know, if they're interested in such things and they want to, to know, you know, just how critical the fire weather conditions are on any given day and outlook period. At the WFO, at the National Weather Service offices, we issue uh, fire weather watches generally about, uh, you know, can be as 
as far out as three days in advance of a potential event. And those just indicate that conditions are becoming increasingly favorable for extreme fire behavior uh, or also new ignitions, new wildland fire ignitions. And then once we get within about 24 hours in an event, we will generally, you know, if, if the forecast remains on track, we'll upgrade to a red flag warning. And a red flag warning is kind of a unique beast in the National Weather Service. You know, everything else is tornado warning, winter storm warning, flash flood warning. And then we call this a red flag warning. And it has a unique history. It was basically a firefighter safety message is how it originated uh, out in the West, where many times in the in the fire season in the Western U.S., you have fire always on the ground out there. And it was a message used to communicate to to firefighters that, you know, at this particular time and space, uh, the fire will likely behave in an extreme way. And it's a safety message for you to, to take precautions. Uh, certainly here on the Southern Plains, now the, the red flag warning has morphed more into a public safety and, uh, of course, a land management and fire management product as well. So uh, the National Weather Service is looking at that in the future, trying to determine, you know, is there a need for public fire safety messages and, and what what venue would we use to, to communicate that? Uh, so that, that's an ongoing effort to maybe modernize the, the fire weather program. Now, sometimes when we get into these very active extreme fire situations, we have what's called a fire warning. And a fire warning is a warning that we can issue at the National Weather Service at the request of a local emergency manager that needs to communicate, uh, prompt a, a mass communication of evacuation instructions. So say a wildfire is approaching a town or a community, the emergency manager can ask us to disseminate a fire warning with detailed uh, instructions for how folks should evacuate. I have a question about that because I'm in emergency management. So how often is that utilized? Because I know we have our own uh, evacuation warning systems and our own ways to do all of that. Uh, how often right. do they rely on that? It differs uh, depending on the season and the severity of the fires that we see in any, any given year. I know that event that I showed you images of from Amarillo, I believe they issued two fire warnings during that event. I've also noticed that use of that product is not very consistent around the country. Some areas where they have, you know, I don't know if it's relationships with emergency managers or just cultural knowledge of, of that capability. Uh, sometimes you see those issued in some parts of the country and then others you don't. It does seem that here in the Southern Plains, it seems to be used more, more commonly. And, and Todd, Ashley, I'm gonna piggyback kind of Ashley's question. When you do have these events going on, what is the what is the role of the National Weather Service? Are you? I know you guys do uh, decision support. Are, are you there communicating with them? Do you give them updates? What what is the role for the Weather Service when, when we do have these big fires? Wow, that's a really great question. So there there are several parts to that. I would say historically, the role of the National Weather Service in fire has been strategic. Uh, our role has been to identify periods or days that are going to have extreme fire behavior due to weather, combinations of weather and fuels, and issue red flag warnings. And then those really prompted strategic preparations by fire and land management. And maybe they would uh, allocate resources to a certain area for a given period of time so that they're available to assist and help you know, mitigate public impacts. Uh, but now, especially with GO-16, 
our role is really transitioning from not just strategic role, but to a tactical role. So now, you know, our red flag warnings and, and fire weather watches and outlooks can help strategically pre-locate resources to a, a area of heightened risk. But now we're actually starting to tactically assist in routing those pre-deployed resources to the fire early so that they can, can attack it early and heavy and, you know, really have a mitigating impact on some of these, these violent fire events. Yeah, definitely. And I was going to say uh, staging is really important. I know you're saying that NWS played a role in that previously, but we actually sent a crew down to Childress for two weeks a couple weeks ago when they had the Amarillo fires because we were seeing that and they have the mutual aid program that that's right Tiffmas. yeah Tiffmas. yeah so we sent two crews down there and they so, were able to help that too so i can say beyond our fire weather watches and red flag warnings uh the national weather service plays a big role in communicating with the state forestry agencies certainly in oklahoma and in texas and helping to uh target those Tiffmas deployments that you're talking about ashley uh, so we actually are, are providing experimental uh, significant wildland fire outlooks uh, that are probabilistic in nature and say may say that there is a 40% probability of significant wildland fires in the Amarillo area, you know, on you know, three days from now or whatever. And, and some of that information is helping to guide some of the, the strategic preparations that you're seeing from the state of Texas. Yeah. And then I had one more question for you. So as an emergency manager who is currently working for a fire department who has meteorology forecasting background and schooling and everything, they want me to get really good at this because they're very <laughs> excited about having that kind of resource. So what are some resources or any kind of thing I could tune into to enhance that? Because I will say uh, living in Lubbock and being a college student who loves severe weather, I really just paid attention to tornado forecasting. Yeah. So I could probably use some work on my fire weather forecasting. So what are some good resources for that? Well, you're not alone. Uh, most meteorologists in the Southern Plains have always been uh, very heavily interested in severe convection and storms and tornadoes and, and the fire side of things. Uh, there was not a lot of work done on uh, Plains fire meteorology prior to the, the really the onset of these big events in about 2005, 06 and beyond. So. Uh, uh, but since then, we've made tremendous strides, and there, there are a couple of uh, resources out there, there are a couple of papers that uh, there's a small working group of subject matter experts in this area in the Plains, and we have authored a number of papers, uh, one in the electronic journal Severe Storms Meteorology on Southern Great Plains wildfire outbreaks, for instance. So you, you can look at that paper and kind of uh, get the basic understanding of, of identifying these outbreak type patterns. We also have a relatively newer paper in the, uh, in the NWA Journal of Operational Meteorology on the low level thermal ridge and how to use that to really focus in on an area of heightened risk and, and physically what's going on with the low level thermal ridge that makes it such a bad player for fire. Well, perfect, thanks for that. I look forward to looking into that. Todd, I had a question for you, if you can hear me okay. I sure can. Go ahead. That's good news. Uh, looks like, yeah, it looks like it's not capturing me when I talk on the stream, so um, I might have to have everybody uh, repeat what I'm saying. Oh, man, it's been one of those nights. It's been one of those days. But, uh, but so uh, let's talk uh, Go16 again briefly. And, um, and so with Go16, you have a, a multitude of fire products. You not only have um, 
you know, the firepower, fire area, fire temperature, drive products from uh, the level two stream, but you also have the fire temperature RGB. Um, I, what products are y'all finding that you're using most in operations? Okay, well, the one particular channel that's specifically made for fire really is channel seven, the 3.9 micron. It's a short wave IR channel. And that is probably the default uh, tool that we're using with GO16. Uh, there are, like I said, the, the fire temperature RGB, which is really cool. That's the example I was showing in the animation. Looks really, really ominous when you see a, a, a good fire on there. Uh, a lot of the derived products like fire power, fire size, uh, those algorithms, from my understanding, are still being kind of tweaked and calibrated to go 16 because they were actually designed for legacy goes. Uh, so they're still they're still a work in progress. And from looking at fire activity in the West this past summer, uh, they they still need some tweaking, and they're being tweaked. Uh, one thing our forecasters have had a lot of success in in finding fire very early is looking at what's known as the fog difference channel which is basically the 11 minus 3.9 micron difference. And with that particular channel, it seems to be very sensitive, and you can see fires really early while they're still fairly small. In fact, uh, in, the, in the last year, on three separate occasions here at WFO Norman, we've successfully helped dispatch crews to structure fires that were previously unreported. Oh, that's awesome. You guys have any uh, luck with the nighttime microphysics too? I have not looked at that in close detail for fire. So I, I'd have to withhold judgment on that one. Awesome. And I have one more for you, Todd. Um, if if I am a viewer watching this show, if I live in, in that area and um, there, there's a, a major wildfire going ongoing, what's the best way that I can get plugged into what's going on? You know, a lot of folks, they're on their phones. They're not really watching TV necessarily. Um, you know, they're just kind of living out of their phones. Uh, what it, when you issue your 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 warnings or your your products, do they automatically go out to the phones, or do, do people need to go into their phones and activate that? What's the process that people can can know what's going on without being told through the news at the last minute or hear see well, stuff in the air? Yeah, I, I would say local media and listening to your local officials is still the best best means of communication to get real time fire information. Uh, during these fire events, both Texas A&M Forest Service and the Oklahoma Forestry Services are very active in social media, especially on Twitter and Facebook. You can get updates that way, but uh, definitely the the local you know broadcast media or media online via social media. Uh, is definitely the best way to get the most up-to-date up information. And of course, if, if it turns into an emergency type of event and your home or, or your community is being threatened, uh, just listen to, to the, the local uh, emergency management and law, law enforcement officials. And Todd, my last question uh, for you is, uh, we've got Go16 now going. What do you think the future is um, for forecasting these wildfires? You see anything else down the pipeline or anything you guys are kind of working on to, to, uh, to get the forecast better and, and to, to kind of really hone in on this. Well, there, it's an exciting time to be working on wildland fire, not just here in the plains, but all across the country, really, because there are some exciting things. You've got the, 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 the new generation of Go satellites, 16 and, and 17, which has now uh, been launched. So uh, the, that's really going to revolutionize the way we handle fire, no doubt. There are other things, too, from a from a broader picture forecast perspective. Uh, 
some exciting things that are being done at the fire sciences lab in Missoula. Uh, gentleman up there, Matt Jolly, a scientist there that's been working on something called the Wildland Fire Assessment System. It's a, a gridded kind of fire danger uh, system that uh, forecasters will be able to, to access and utilize to help uh, forecast areas of heightened risk as well. So there are some some innovative things occurring, you know, in the wildland fire communities, specifically in areas of operational fire forecasting for for the national weather service and beyond okay i lied i do have one more okay just you just you just brought up a good point um can you see these fires before they're actually reported and, and can you be the ones to re actually report to the authorities what's going on at, at what time in some cases we absolutely can and have been uh, on multiple occasions uh, like i said even even recently picking up on structure fires you know and that's pretty amazing when you're talking about an instrument that's 22,000 miles away and it's seeing a house burning in central oklahoma uh, but we are in many cases catching uh, a, a signature in the shortwave ir imagery before local 911 calls are received at, at a local jurisdiction and Todd, speaking on that, I know we talked before this show, you guys uh, have partnered with the Oklahoma Emergency Management. Uh, you guys are doing some cool things with, with those folks as well, with, with fire, with wildfires and with the GO-16 data. That's right. Uh, some of the folks there, uh, Zach Stanford and, and uh, Daniel Pilts, have been instrumental in helping us uh, with this uh, wildfire detection or what we call hotspot notification uh, system. That we're using here and uh, it's you know direct feedback during periods of active fires here in oklahoma and in texas and and even now expanding into kansas the direct feedback we're getting from the ems is certainly along the lines of you know this is saving lives and saving property very cool well i know uh, we, we don't want to keep you all night i, I know we could continue talking about this but uh how can uh, our folks uh get a hold of you or kind of see uh, do you have a Twitter account you want to push out or just the forecast office there? Uh, what social media accounts can, can they follow you just at? Just at NWS Norman, and my email address is Todd.Lindley at NOAA.gov. We're back next week with an all-new episode of the Carolina Weather Group, Wednesday night, 8.15 p.m. Eastern time on Facebook Live, YouTube, and Periscope, and always available on demand as a podcast on your favorite podcast platforms, including TuneIn, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play.